overdue. I'm Mrs. Watts. And I'm Coach Hill. We're coming to you from BDP Library at White House High. So today's episode will be a little bit different. Um, we kind of have a backlog of the student previews uh, that we that we usually put in. Uh, and now that we're in a new school year, we're getting new ones. Um, so the plan for this episode and for a couple of future episode, episodes will be just to play some of those. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, this is Maggie Earls. Today I'll be reading From Milk and Honey by Ruth Kaur. This book is a collection of poems dedicated to explaining the author's personal struggles with change and the overall process of healing. She organizes this into four chapters. The hurting, the loving, the breaking, and the healing. I will be reading a two-page poem from pages 140 to 141 in the chapter The Breaking. This poem is called Selfish. I will tell you about selfish people. Even when they know they will hurt you, they walk into your life to taste you because you are the type of being they don't want to miss out on. You are too much shine to not be felt. So, when they've gotten a good look at everything you have to offer, when they have taken your skin, your hair, and your secrets with them, when they realize how real this is, how much of a storm you are, and it hits them, that is when the cowardice sets in. That is when the person you thought they were is replaced by a sad reality of what they are. That is when they lose every fighting bone in their body and leave you after saying, you will find better than me. You'll stand there naked with half of them still hidden somewhere inside you and sob, asking them why they did it. Why they forced you to love them with no intention of ever loving you back. And they'll say something along the lines of, I just had to try. I had to give it a chance. It was you after all. But that isn't romantic. It isn't sweet. The idea that they were so engulfed by your existence, they had to risk breaking it for the sake of knowing that they weren't the ones missing out. Your existence meant that little, standing next to their curiosity of you. That is the thing about selfish people. They gamble entire beings, entire souls to please their own. One second they are holding you like the world in their lap, and the next they have belittled you to a mere picture. A moment. Something of the past. One second. They swallow you up and whisper they want to spend the rest of their lives with you. But the moment they have a sense of fear, they are halfway out the door. Without having the nerve to let you go with grace. As if the human heart means that little to them. After all of this, after all of the taking, the nerve. Isn't it sad and funny how people have more guts these days to undress you than they do to pick up their phone and call? Apologize for the loss. And this is How You Lose Her. Hi, my name is Isabel Brownlee, and I'm going to be talking about the book Divergent by Veronica Roth. In a world divided by groups, Tris needs to find where she belongs. She takes a test to decide what group she belongs in. Her test results are inconclusive and finds that she is divergent. She has to decide what group she fits in. Will she choose what she wants or what her family wants? Caleb and I climb the stairs, and at the top, 
When we divide to go to our separate bedrooms, he stops me with a hand on my shoulder. Beatrice, he says, looking sternly into my eyes, we should think of our families, with an edge to his voice, but we must also think of ourselves. For a moment, I stare at him. I have never seen him think of himself, never heard him insist on anything but selflessness. I'm so startled by his comment that I just say what I think I'm supposed to say. The tests don't have to change our choices. He smiles a little. Don't they, though? He squeezes my shoulder and walks into his bedroom. I peer into his room and see an unmade bed with a stack of books on his desk. He closes the door. I wish I could tell him we're going through the same thing. I wish I could speak to him like I want to instead of like what I'm supposed to. But the idea of admitting that I need help is too much to bear, so I turn away. I walk into my room, and when I close the door behind me, I realize that the decision might be simple. It will require a great act of selflessness to choose abnegation, or a great act of courage to, to, to choose dauntless. And maybe just choosing one over the other will prove that I belong. Tomorrow these two qualities will struggle within me, and only one can win. The room goes silent, except a ringing sound. I hear my name and, I, and a shudder propels me forward. Halfway to the bowls, I'm sure I will choose abnegation. I can see it now. I watch myself grow into a woman of abnegation robes, marrying Susan's brother, Robert, volunteering on weekends, a peace, the peaceful routine, the quiet nights spent in front of the fireplace, the certainty I will be safe. And if not good enough, better than I am now. The ringing, I realize, is in my ears. I look at Caleb, who now stands behind Erudite. He stares back at me and nods a little, like he knows what I'm thinking and agrees. My footsteps falter. If Caleb wasn't fit for abnegation, how can I be? But what choice do I have? Now that he left us, I'm the only one who remains. He left me no other option. I set my jaw. I'll be the child that stays. I have to do this for my parents. I have to. Marcus offers me a knife. I look into his eyes. They are dark blue, a strange color, and I take it. He nods, and I turn towards the bowl. Dauntless fire and abnegation stones are both on my left, one in front of my shoulder and one behind. I hold the knife in my right hand and touch the blade to my palm. Gritting, gritting my teeth, I drag the blade down. It stings, but I barely notice. I hold both hands to my chest and the next breath shudder on the way out. I open my eyes and thrust my arm out. My blood drips onto the carpet between the two bowls. Then, I gasp, I, with a gasp I cannot contain, I shift my hand forward, and the blood sizzles on the coals. I am selfless. I am brave. Hi, this is Gracie Marion, and I'm going to be reading from the book I Know What You Did Last Summer by author Lewis Duncan. This book is about four teenagers who one day were out partying and were headed back home one late night. The teenagers were going down a windy, curvy road and accidentally hit a little boy on a bike headed home from his friend's house. When this happened, it was traumatic for all of them, and they didn't know what to do after. They were all very scared and couldn't forget about it. As much as they tried, they just couldn't. I'm going to be reading pages 52 to 53. 
Like Barry says, what good would it do to go back now? The damage is done. He'll have all the help he needs, poor kid, before we could even get there. It would be so unfair letting Barry take the blame for all of us. I don't believe it, Julie whispered. I just don't really believe you're saying this. There was a long silence. Then Barry said, that's it then. We've made a pact and no one can break it. Now let's get back into town and split up and go home. The next morning, it had been in the paper. Ray had read it at breakfast, sitting there at the table, hearing his father's voice, reading aloud from the sports page, smelling the plate of pancakes his mother had just placed before him. He stared down at the story. On page two, next to the obituaries, and he had known he was going to be sick. Daniel Gregg, conscious of one arrival of the rescue crew, died on en route to St. Joseph's Hospital. Excuse me, he had mumbled, getting quickly to his feet. I'm not too hungry. Why, Ray? His mother had exclaimed in concern, but he made it out of the room before she could stop him. Later, he called Julie. Miss Jameson answered the phone. Julie isn't feeling well this morning, Ray, she had told him. Why don't you call back this evening? He had, and Julie had answered. Her voice had sounded small and thin. I don't want to talk, she had said. Not now, not about anything, and he had known that it was over. He had placed the receiver back on the hook and lowered his face into his hands, and for the first time since he had been a little boy, he had cried. Now, almost a full year later, he stood staring at the story, and the same cold feeling touched his heart. The clipping was yellowed from exposure. Someone had handled it often and read it many times. It was creased down the middle and had a smell of old dollar bills. Someone had kept it in the wallet, perhaps, drawing it out at odd times during the day to look at it and dwell upon it. Someone had finally come to a decision and had addressed an envelope and mailed the clipping to an 18-year-old boy named Raymond Bronson. Why? Ray asked himself. Does this person who sent this really know something, or is he just guessing? What does he know exactly, and who is he, and how does he know it? And most important of all, what is he going to do next? It's time for us to check out. Don't forget to follow us at BDP underscore library on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and share us with a friend. Please check back with us every other week for the next episode of Overdue. Make time to read. Thanks for listening.